The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news, advice, information, and techniques you need to learn to start a real estate investing business or to grow the one you already have. Today is question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, which means it's your week to answer any or ask any questions that you might have about getting started buying financing renting managing uh, whatever you want to talk about that's what we're talking about on real life real estate this evening now of course the flip side of that is that without your questions there is no show so don't be hesitant to call in or send in your questions because I've just decided today, if I don't have a question, we're just going to sit in silence until one comes in. We've got sound effects for that as well. So you will just hear crickets. The way to contact us here at the studio is by phone at 877-772-9658 or you can send an email by going to askvena.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A dot com. Filling in the questionnaire form, remembering to say where you are from, because sometimes that matters. And uh, hit the send button and we will get it here about, oh, I don't know, five minutes later, the miracle of the interweb. And uh, while you're there, you can also sign up for our complimentary weekly e-letter that comes out each Wednesday, where you will hear about the upcoming program as well as get an article and or news about what is going on in the real estate investing world to keep you focused and keep you remembering not only that you are in need of a radio to tune in your favorite show, but also that you are, in fact, investing in real estate. Folks who received the Real Real Life Real Estate Newsletter today received an article about why live events are such an important part of your real estate investing career. The internet is an interesting place to get education. Uh, Doing self-study is also something that uh, a lot of folks like to do. But there is nothing that compares to coming to live events where you can meet actual people and get real feedback right away about what you're hearing and about what other folks are doing. In fact, I heard a uh, comment last night at a group in Indianapolis about uh, from a fellow who had attended last year's OREA National Summit and said that he 
found his first deal at that summit by networking and made about $27,000 on it. And he lives in Indianapolis and the event was in Cincinnati. And yet he networked his way into a deal. By the way, if you would like to get one of the last two remaining tickets that uh, WMKV has for the OREA 2014 National Summit, uh, you can do that by going to wmkvfm.org. They are at a discounted price and there are just two sets left. So uh, if you want to want to if you want to go go, but if you want to go and contribute to public radio while you're at it, it's wmkvfm.org. Again, to contact me here in the studio today with questions, it's eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, or it is uh, uh, askvena.com, askvena.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which is always an interesting week because uh, without questions, there's no show. And I always spend the first 10 minutes tap dancing, asking about who's got a question. And I uh, got one here from Darren, who is in the Detroit area, I believe. And his question is, hi, Vina, I'm at work. Gosh, I'll be glad when I can fire my boss. Here's a question for tonight's Q&A. First, about comps. What is the best way to get decent comps if you're unable to purchase a comping service? Uh, that is a good question, Darren, and one that a lot of brand new investors who don't have a real budget for things like comping services yet uh, have. And the answer is what you're trading by getting a, a less expensive or free way of finding comparable sales. So you're trading money for convenience, um, I guess, as we, as we all do all the time. The free services that are out there online, uh, Zillow House Values, uh, used to be Trulia, but I guess Trulia and Zillow uh, combined, they all have the information you're looking for, which is what what properties have sold nearby mine that are largely similar and have sold recently and what did they sell for. What they don't really do is they don't make it easy for you to trim down the number of sales to the ones that are most applicable to yours because there's other things you care about other than did the house sell and was it close by and did it sell recently you care about the number of rooms and bedrooms the square footage you care about uh, what school system the comparable properties are in because they need to be in the same school system as yours obviously uh, you compare you care if, if if about the construction is it brick or frame? Do you care about um, all, all sorts of things that you can't you can't ask those programs in that kind of detail and and get any significant number of results. So with a paid comping system, a subscription comping system, typically you can say, I only want houses between twelve hundred and fourteen hundred square feet that had three bedrooms 
and between one and a half and two baths and are within one half mile of this and sold in the last six months and we're brick and we're in the school system. You can't do that with the free services. So what what you do instead is you put in all the criteria that you can put in and then you end up sorting out a lot of non-comparables uh, sort of by hand. So your answer is go to one of the one of the many free uh, online uh property services that get their data from the same place that a lot of the comparable services do, the courthouse and the MLS, and uh, just expect it to take a little longer to figure out what a property is worth right now and to do some driving around and actually looking at the properties. So that's that's your answer. Uh, number two, I've been hearing a lot of talk about how wholesaling is illegal. <clears throat> well, um, no, you haven't. Well, no, you have, but the talk is inaccurate. Uh, this all stems back to the Ohio Division of Real Estate's spring 2014 newsletter in which there was an article warning real estate agents, licensed real estate agents, to stay away from seminars that claimed that one could wholesale properties without a real estate license. And it did go on to say that some of these uh, seminars teach schemes in which a property can be conveyed for a fee with uh, an assignment of contract and yada, da 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 And somehow what all this turned into on the internet, uh, and I've seen this in, in many forums or fora, excuse me, and chat rooms, they don't call them that anymore, but I'm, I'm old. And real estate related uh, uh, websites and so on. Uh, somehow that became, they are passing laws to make wholesaling illegal. And that's, that's just, that's just a wildly inaccurate uh, statement. No, no one to my knowledge in any state in the United States is suggesting or voting on a law to quote, make wholesaling illegal. In fact, no one, including the division of real estate is saying that wholesaling is illegal. In fact, they don't even have a definition of the word wholesaling. They don't, they don't have something that they call wholesaling because so many people do so many different things and call it wholesaling. They, are, they are, have taken the position recently that people who assign contracts may need a real estate license. And that people who do certain other things uh, absolutely need a real estate license because there are folks out there who are doing something that they call wholesaling that I would not call wholesaling. Um, crazy stuff that they should not be doing and shouldn't be doing with or without a real estate license. But uh, no, wholesaling is not illegal. No one is saying it's illegal. The Ohio Division of Real Estate has taken the position that in some cases, uh, transactions may not be legal without a license without a real estate license and of course uh, illegal stuff is illegal if you're doing something that you're calling wholesaling but it's actually in some way I don't know doing something completely different than wholesaling uh, then yes that would be illegal altogether but no the only thing the Ohio Division of Real Estate is saying is that you may need a license in order to wholesale but thank you very much for your question, Darren. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. 
If you would like to ask a question, as D- uh, Darren just did, you would do that by going to askvina.com. You would then fill out the form that says, ask Vina a question, and uh, it will come over here to us via email. You can also do the brave thing and just give us a call. 877-772-9658 is the number that you would use to do that. And uh, any question today about anything you've heard over the last few shows on the podcast, uh, whatever, um, this is a good day to ask it. Uh, got a question here from John in Anderson, South Carolina, and I had to spend a minute uh, going through it here because uh, he forwarded me a form from a from an offer submission website that is a uh, I don't want to say who, but it is a it is a bank, a lender an institutional website where you go and. Uh, submit offers on properties that they have listed in the MLS. And his question was, is this typical for banks? Now, let me say, let me tell you what the, what the important part of what he received was. Uh, this was actually to his agent, and it said, Dear Buyer's Agent, please relay to your buyers that this property has received multiple offers and that the seller is requesting your client's highest and best offer. And his questions in regards to that were, is this notice typical for banks? The answer is absolutely yes. It's one of the most common responses that you will get to an offer with a bank. Number two, does the bank really have multiple offers or is it likely that they are not getting any other serious interest and are tired of getting lowball offers and are really just looking for my best offer? Well, obviously they are looking for your best offer. Whether or not they have multiple current, active, um, serious, fully documented offers, that's that's a potential question mark. I have had uh, banks claim that they were in multiple offers when I they had received three offers over the course of six months and the other two were actually ex- you know, long since expired. Who know, you know, Who knows if the buyer was still interested or not. Or when they had received two offers of which mine was the significantly higher because you notice they have not and will not tell you whether you had the higher offer or not in that case. So do I know whether you are truly up against somebody else with a serious offer who can really close? I do not know the answer to that and we will never know the answer to that. Should you raise your own offer? As an investor, probably not. I'm guessing you made the offer that made sense to you for whatever your exit strategy is. You may already have the higher offer. Bidding against yourself is never a good idea, and that's what you would be doing here since you don't know whether there is another offer and whether or not it is higher. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen this particular notice from various banks and then it turned out they didn't accept anybody's offer. So uh, your response would probably be something like, your response through your agent would, would probably be something like, you have my highest and best offer. He says, can you give me some recommendations regarding time on market and percentage of offer and ARV? In other words, bank puts the property on the market, uh, is there some formula by which I can determine what percentage of 
the asking price or the after repaired value, I should offer, and the answer is no. You you have a formula. You know what you want to pay for properties. That's what you offer. There's no, there's not particularly with bank owned properties some magic formula that says, well, if it's been on the market for six months, then I'll take half what they're asking. Uh, and if there is one, again, we are not privy to it. So uh, you make you make your offer. There's no no necessary relationship between what your formula tells you you should pay given your exit strategy and what is being asked. Now I will. I will flip that around as well and say, if you see that the asking price is $90,000 and you calculate your offer and it comes out at $35,000, do not not make it. Make it. You, you have to give people a chance to say no if you're going to give them a chance to say yes. Do most banks follow a tip? This is a multi-part. This is an essay question. Do, do most banks follow a typical schedule to reduce the price based on number of days on the market? Uh, according to REO agents that I've talked to, they are, depending on who the actual owner is, uh, they are asked to make regular uh, reevaluations of the property and do new broker's price opinions based on new sales and so on. And typically those happen every 30 days or so, but no, there's not a schedule to reduce the price because the BPO keeps coming back at the same value. They may just keep it at the same value. Uh, is there a typical number of days banks will use as a threshold before considering dumping the property? No, not a typical one. And by the way, John, that that market for bank-owned properties has has changed a lot in the last eighteen months or so. Um, for and as I'm sure you've you've noticed because I know you've been in the market for quite a while, the the number of banks who are quote dumping properties via MLS is has has shrunk a lot because the REO inventory has shrunk a lot. Many bank owned properties now are selling very quickly, which they did not do four or five years ago. Uh, used to be that if you saw a property that was bank owned that had been on the property uh, been on the market for six months or more and was in pretty rough shape, uh, banks were often extremely willing to deal on price, like you know take twenty percent, thirty percent, fifty percent of what they were asking. Uh, because there are fewer properties and they are hotter than they used to be, they are uh, not dealing quite so much. And many times now it's become a big thing that when so- certain of the largest lenders and secondary buyers uh, have a property that gets to five, six months on the market without having sold, they do what's called bulking it out. They they pull it off the market. You'll see it. You'll see the listing canceled or withdrawn. They put it together with $10 million worth of other REOs and they sell it all as one big giant package to some private equity fund or hedge fund. And then it will come back on the market at some point later as as those folks decide to sell it. So uh, they're not as, not as anxious to sell as they used to be. They have more inventory on the market and uh, less desire to just deal and let it go cheaply and so on than they did a few years back. So thank you very much for your question, John. If you have a question for real life real estate investing, go to askvina.com, fill out the question form there, hit send, get it over here to me or give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate and a... um, a listener who was really on it just pointed out to me that our askvina.com site is down, which explains an awful lot. 
I've been sending people there to send to ask questions, and it's when I, I just went there, and it says page not found, surprisingly. So, uh, alternative way of getting your email questions into real life real estate investing. Uh, send an email to askvina at gmail.com and it'll come here via email. You can also give us a call at 877-772-9658 or here in the greater Cincinnati area, just plain old 772-9658. Any questions that you have, uh, we'd welcome them today since I just spent 40 minutes telling people to go to a site that apparently is not operational at the moment. I'm pretty sure that I radiate some spectral magnetism that crashes all computers, websites, cell phones, anything. Remember the time I blew up the whole station that one time? Yeah, I did. I plugged in my computer and literally the station like stopped working. <laughs> not kidding you. Uh, so, uh, 877-772-9658 or, uh, askvina at gmail.com. Uh, have a question here from, uh, it doesn't say who it's from. There's just a message body here. It's uh, it says it's from Gaynell. And the question is, do you recommend a professional letter with lots of info or an ugly yellow letter which gives little information when you are writing to sellers? And the answer is, there's a lot of distance between professional letter with lots of info and ugly yellow letter which gives little or no information, uh, Gaynell. So... Uh, let, let let me say this. The, the thing that is commonly referred to as the yellow letter in our business, which is a handwritten letter on a piece of yellow lined paper that generally says something like, uh, I, uh, I'm interested in buying your house for cash and has your name and phone number on it, uh, is very effective in certain situations, in uh, certain seller situations. Um, uh, vacant ugly houses is a good example of a time when that's then that gets a fairly high response rate. On the other hand, you wouldn't want to send it to someone who had inherited a house because their parent died because it's a little informal for that purpose. And so, you know, you're going to use probably a mixture of things, the yellow letter being one of them and uh, a more traditional letter with, you know, typed and letterhead and so on. Uh, in other circumstances. Now, the thing that concerns me here is this thing about lots of information. Uh, it's been my experience that in seller marketing, when you are sending people something that they, they're not expecting it, they didn't ask for it, they didn't you know call you and say, hey, can you send me a letter about buying my house? You You have to keep it briefer than most people keep it. Most people want to use up the entire eight and a half by 11 page with you know quarter inch margins, top, bottom, and both sides. Uh, and they want to say things like, oh, I'm an experienced real estate professional with over 55 years in the business, and I belong to a group of investors who buys and sells five to 10 houses per month and would like to do more, and a bunch of stuff that's supposed to be credibility building, but all it does is reject the seller's eyes because there's so much on that page. Even the even the more, quote, professional letters should not take up the whole page. They should, you need to pull back on the on the on the 
number of words and on the features that you're talking about. You know, I, I buy houses in 10 days or less as a feature. You could have this problem behind you in 30 days or less is a benefit. Features are factoids. I buy houses in 30 days is not a is a feature. It is not a benefit. Uh, and focus entirely on the benefits. I can make it easy for you. You won't have to fix up your house. You know, whatever it, is, it would it would be situational depending on who you're writing to. But no, don't fill up the whole page. One inch margins, two three paragraphs at the outside, and uh, benefits bullet pointed preferably. You listen to Real Life Real Estate. It's question and answer week. We're going to go to line one now and talk to John. Yes. Hi, John. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hey, Vina. This is John Young in uh, in Nashville. Hi, How you John. I've uh, been great. How have you, how you been? Look forward to seeing you at the uh, national convention. Yeah, it's gonna hey. be a good time. Question question is about probate. Are, are one are you uh, are you working probate and and specifically how do you how are you doing that? Well, how are you finding those? those those properties it's interesting that you asked that and also mentioned you're coming to the convention because of course we have a guy coming to the convention who's probably the one of the leading experts in the whole no he is one of the i see i'm I'm on public radio so i always like pull back on my he is one of the leading experts in the country on probate his name is ed haynes and i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a short answer and then i'm gonna direct you to go see him because he, I just, I actually just saw his uh, presentation when I was in Orlando last week, and it's quite detailed and good and correct. What he says, he, he says some stuff that I do that I have never heard anyone else say that is absolutely correct. But the answer, the answer to your question is, all probates are they're they're basically lawsuits. Okay, so I have to what what I'm doing when I when I file probate is I am proving. The legitimacy of the will. I am opening up a case, uh, really on behalf of the creditors of the estate. Everybody thinks it's for the heirs, but the but the reality is, uh, the 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 purpose of opening probate is to make sure the creditors get paid before the heirs get paid anything. And so it's public record. There, it's 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 just you know there's a probate court there in the county somewhere, and uh, in many cases in in you know more sophisticated cities like Nashville. Uh, you can get those records online or get a lot of the records online. Uh, otherwise, it might take a visit to the courthouse. And the information that you're looking for in the in the case file is who was made responsible for settling the estate. Uh, those are called different things in different states. Some uh, Here it's called uh, an administrator or an executor. I know out in California they call them personal, administra- uh, personal administrators. Uh, but it's basically the person appointed by the will or by the court to shepherd the thing through the process and get get everything dealt with. And that's the person who has the decision-making capacity about the property while it is in probate. Now, you might have one executor and 19 heirs, and the heirs might state their opinion to the executor about what should happen to the house and how much it should sell for but the executor actually has the legal right to sell it so that's the person who you'd be signing a contract with so that's the person that you want to mail do you work through attorneys well that's that's there's a yeah there's a second piece which is the executor is usually not an attorney occasionally you'll see one who is but 
there is almost always an attorney representing the estate. The family almost always hires one. And I've had interesting results in working with the attorneys. Uh, I've, I've done mailings to them. I've said if you have, if you have clients who have properties in probate or even tied up in divorce or anything like that, that, that need a lot of work and they're going to be hard to sell, that's the kind of property I buy. And the response rate on, on those sorts of mailings is extremely low. Like if I get a half a percent response, if I mail out, you know, a thousand letters and I get five responses from attorneys, it, that's a good response. But the attorneys who do respond can often be the source of multiple deals. Because, yeah, right now maybe they have a, they have a, an estate they're settling, but in two weeks they have a divorce case, and three months after that they have a bankruptcy and then another estate. So it can be worth doing, but you, you have to realize you have to build that relationship with that attorney. And many times I'll get an attorney who calls and says, yes, um, my client passed away and he left the $3 million single-family home in the best area of town and it's in perfect condition and if you will pay $2.9 million for it, the heirs would be happy to sell it. And obviously that's not the kind of deal I'm <laughs> looking for, but I will, I will explain why. You know, I'll say, uh, yeah, that's, I really appreciate your call. I'm really looking for stuff, you know, knock off like three zeros from that and we're in the right price range. So if you see anything like that, uh, definitely give me a call. But this one's just, it's just out of my reach. It's just not an investor property. And then I'll send them a thank you note to follow up and say, you know, I really appreciate you calling. Sorry we couldn't work out anything on this one, but perhaps the next one will work for us. Well, I appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing you in Cincinnati. You bet. Thanks, John. Okay, thanks, Dana. Bye-bye. We have a huge contingent coming from Nashville. Literally like 30, 35 people coming from Nashville, and they all talk like that, so it's great. You get to walk around and hear nice southern accents. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And uh, we have about oh, 10 more minutes to answer your question. You can send it by email to askvina at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And... Uh, Got all kinds of questions coming in now that we've got the correct email address. Askvina at gmail.com. This one is from John in Indianapolis. He says, does the 3.8% healthcare tax apply to rental income also, or does it only apply to capital gains situations like when you flip a property? Uh, the answer, John, is that it can apply to both. It can apply to basically almost any kind of passive real estate income, interest dividends, uh, capital gains. However, it does only fall upon individuals with an adjusted gross income over 200000 or couples filing a joint return of more than 250000 And it is not a tax on the net profit per se it can it uh, is it's a it's a more complicated uh um formula than that uh so the bad news is yes it could apply to your rental income which means if your cpa is telling you hey you owe this on your rental income then you probably do 
at the same time, uh, again, it is a it's a it's a complicated question that I'm not I'm not really and truly um, uh, somebody who can answer. I'm not that's that's not my area of expertise. I do know uh, what I told you, but uh, you might want to go to realtor.org and download their report that they wrote for real estate agents about uh, the various ways in which this can work. And uh, it's a pretty good, colorful (laughs) report. And uh, it'll tell you a lot more than we'd be able to cover even if I were qualified to give you tax advice here. So uh, yeah, it, it, it could apply to your rental income, sadly enough. A uh, question from Tom in Northern Kentucky. Uh, this is this is funny. Tom's I think Tom's poking me here. Uh, question is: Would you please discuss mentors, compare and contrast them, and talk about how you select them? Uh, well, okay. So the man um, should do a whole show on that sometime because. I think we would have to def- we would have to start with how do you define a mentor? Because uh, out in the business world, the way people think of mentors is it's somebody who is who's more experienced than I am, who sort of has taken a shine to me and is helping me through my career in uh, more of a, like a soft skills way, an advice way. You know, they meets me for lunch once a month and and you know, introduces me to important people and helps me understand how to get ahead in my business. In the real estate world, when people say that they have a mentor, what they usually mean is that they have a paid coach who answers questions for them, which is not at all the same thing. Uh and and there's there's so many folks out there who are holding themselves out as as mentors or coaches and hey if you pay me either by writing me a check or by giving me half of all of your deals for the next year or whatever the case may be i will mentor you the quality of the mentoring and i'm i'm you can't see me using the ironic quotes with my fingers but i am we need to be on tv mike we need to get a camera in here like howard stern that the people people offer to mentor you only with less nakedness so people who mentor you uh a lot of them frankly don't know enough to be coaching you i i know i know folks uh actually here in the area who've been in real estate for two years or less, in some cases, six, eight months, who are offering to coach people, mentor people, take half their deals from them, who then call me to ask questions about those deals because they don't they don't know enough about it. And what they've really done is they found a way for people to pay them to bird dog for them. And it's really hard to tell the difference when you're, when you're the one wanting to be mentored. It, Everything's so new that somebody could be telling you incorrect things. People could be telling you illegal things. People could be telling you unethical things, and you wouldn't know it because you just don't have the frame of reference to be able to uh, tell something like that. So I can tell you how I choose my mentors and coaches. Experience. And there, there is just absolutely no substitute for somebody having been in the market for years and years and years and years and years. I have this I have this thing that I say to people about 
being in the real estate business for two to four years is a very dangerous thing because that's the point at which you decide you know everything and you're wrong. I remember doing that <laughs> when I'd been in real estate for two years. I'd done like 60 deals. I thought I was, I thought I was it. I thought I was like the best thing since, you know, like Ron Legrand. And I, that was, that was the period of time during which I made the biggest mistakes I made in my real estate career because I was so convinced that, you know, I didn't need to ask anybody anything. I knew how to do this. And that's the point at which a lot of people become coaches and mentors because, you know, folks at their real estate association start getting super impressed with them just because they've done deals and the people who are impressed have not. So I guess for me, it's, it's years of experience, multiple deals in the field in which they are mentoring me. And, um, you know, good attitude, good philosophy, good ethics, all of that sort of thing. Um, it is also been my experience and I'll just, I'll just put this out there as a warning to keep your eyes open, uh, to everyone that when, when people, when people come and actively volunteer to mentor you, particularly if they are not asking for money for it, you need to be wary of that because as much as, you know, I, and a lot of real estate folks like to give back to new people. If we are really doing our business, we don't have a lot of time to do that. And someone coming to you and saying, well, yeah, I've got 10 years of experience and I will show you the ropes for free. And and they're coming to you. It's not that it's not that, you know, you built a relationship with them. I, I think you have to question what is in it for them because it ain't, it ain't, the the good feeling they get from spending a whole bunch of time with a new investor there's something else going on there and i've seen i hate to sound cynical but i've seen cases like this in associations all over the country where there is someone who hangs out and approaches new members and new investors with this offer and what they are really trying to do is normally something like sell them properties I've seen I've seen um, uh, folks who who wholesale deals uh, quote take people under their wings and then you know they'll spend two or three days you know, follow me around and I'll show you what a great deal looks like and then they they see a particular deal and they say hey this would be a great deal for you you should buy this deal well you're you're buying it from them and you're buying it for more money than you should almost all the time because the reason they grabbed you as a newbie was because they could teach you how to evaluate properties and it was in their best interest to teach you to overpay. So just please, please be careful. That's all I ask of you. And again, it is important how much experience folks have. And frankly, I trust paid mentoring more than I trust. Oh, I just like you. Uh, another question from Tom, uh, how do you go about targeting a market and how tightly do you focus? Also, do you use someone to handle your marketing fulfillment? Uh, the answer to question B there, does someone else address the things, stamp the things, et cetera, is absolutely yes. That is not a good use of your time as someone who understands how to make deals. It's a, that's a, you know, eight, $10 an hour job. And you should be just sitting there waiting for the phone calls. Um, targeting the targeting a market, I assume that you mean a geographical market. And 
The answer is it depends on what I'm looking for. If I'm looking for rental properties, there's there are only particular areas in which I will buy rental properties. So if I'm doing a mailing to try and find a rental, it's going to be in a very tight area. If I'm doing a mailing because I'm just looking for something to wholesale or to retail, so something that's going to be a, a shorter term type of thing, I don't care where it is, as long as it's within a reasonable driving distance so I can go see it. So uh, for for rentals, I'm going to do like one zip code for other kinds of deals, I might do everything within the city limits or within the, uh, in our case, the 275 loop that goes around Cincinnati. So uh, it really depends on what we're doing. Um, guess we are out of time. So I uh, appreciate all you folks who sent in questions. And uh, don't forget to go to wmkvfm.org. Grab the last couple of tickets to the OREA National New Strategy Summit, and it supports public radio when you do. In other words, it supports the show. In other words, you get to keep hearing real life real estate, wmkvfm.org. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.